This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All you need is a table to bang on and your voice. You know what I mean? To really, and you're making hip hop. You know, it started off as a way for people to express themselves who hadn't really been able to be heard. I got myself into something, you could say that again. But the difference is this time is not an accident. I set my goals now, I'm going after them. Just pray that reality doesn't lay me on my back again. I spend them in the tripping. There's definitely been times where I felt like unaccepted because either being an Asian kid or a white kid or the fact, I mean, even just the fact that the Asian hip-hop population, I feel like oftentimes looks at me as not Asian. The white hip-hop population, I feel like oftentimes looks at me as not white. The black hip-hop population oftentimes has no idea what the I am, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> And then at the end of this, try to drop a uh, bomb and then straight into, uh, choo- I choose you, yeah. Look, my mind's running at a mile a minute. Try not to think, but I see mind is vivid. Trying to find deliverance. Put my ducks in a row. Realign my pigeons. Putting rhyme to rhythms. Got vibrant visions. Used to be just shy and timid. Now I'm just shy. Inside's a lion in it. Don't think I'm high just cause my eyes are squinted. You should think I'm high cause my eyes is pigment. Bloodshot. The funny thing is he's probably talking to everybody I know. Everybody who's like, oh yeah, with Jay Lately. And he's like, <laughs> Jay Lately's cool, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, him being a friend of mine, I've I've come to have a, a pretty thorough understanding of how his biracial culture relates to him. You got this thick understanding kind of what's expected of him due to his cultural background, I have a lot more respect for him and why he chooses to go about hip-hop and being an artist in the way that he does. I don't think race matters. It does. It does a lot. Most people do look at it a certain way and be like, oh, he's Asian. Let's see this nerd rap. And then, you know, he pulls through and then brings everybody back. You see this fool in the, this shirt right here? Yeah. That's the first shirt I ever made. That's from like four years ago, three, four years ago. I only made like 25 of them. I haven't seen that dude in like, I don't even know that kid. I know that was dope walking out and it's all different uh, different shirts yeah I just want to feel like financially comfortable where then I have the freedom to do what I want instead of what I have to do I mean truthfully I think that's probably something that a lot of children of immigrants experience kind of you know what I mean it's it's kind of like this it's this weird thing because our parents a lot of our parents came here to give us better opportunities right but in order to give us those better opportunities they had to really struggle or sacrifice um, work jobs that a lot of people didn't want to work whatever work hours people didn't want to work in order for us to get these opportunities but it's this weird thing because it's like all right so you did all that so we don't have to but at the same time we feel kind of guilty about just like chasing all our dreams like you know what I mean like my parents had to work and now it's just so I can get to like chase my dreams it's kind of like this catch-22 didn't like that because that is in your job and that is in my neck I don't mean to offend you I'm just stating facts you can call them opinions I'm okay with that so just breathe I know you need that ah just breathe go ahead and relax ah so where the weed at 
breathe Take a little bit of, need a little more Something better for us, no forever force But the present is a gift, don't forget it's yours Breathe Yep, just like that. And Things like that in my verses, there's just a couple ones where if you give me that breath, I'm good for the rest of the time. Right. Let's start working on that. Yeah. Man. You know what? In that case, send me the breakdown of all that that you need help with. Like the ones where I really need help? With everything that you need help with. Because if that's what you want, then that's what we should be practicing. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we're only going to get there by practicing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, hey. What's up, guys? How you doing out there? It's your boy Jay Lately. Welcome to the third episode of my new mini-series, Food with Friends. If you've been watching, you know what we're doing. We're just cooking some meals. I'm going to let you guys inside my kitchen, show you what I got going on inside my house. And I'm going to have a different guest each night that's over. going to eat some food with me. Each of these people has been an integral part of making the album Let's Just Be Friends. So stay tuned. Check us out. We appreciate you being here. One love. Perfect, yeah. Let's do a couple more though. There's some things I didn't like. <laughs> Did I tell you about that the little like cooking shows that I'm doing? And then we're gonna have like text like food with friends come up on there. And then, <laughs> and then it goes into these episodes. I don't have the actual episode, but it's we it's crazy. We made it like a legit cooking show. It's dope. That's tight. Yeah. Always thinking outside of the box, man. Yeah. Hip hop already takes from so many cultures it borrows from so many cultures hip-hop is a style of music or in a, in a culture more so that has borrowed from funk uh even disco borrowed from um from metal from punk so really what's hip-hop you know hip-hop is a melting pot of culture so for me myself being being uh, a mexican-american jay lately uh being half asian and all that it's like it is what it is. It's 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 a melting pot. So you're gonna get people from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, creating this music. being like in a full song or in a full way being a biracial kid I mean I don't know it's such a such an interesting situation though because that's kind of like the world is becoming more and more just like a, a mix of everything and I don't know like thinking about being biracial like I know literally my parents were like being discriminated against for dating each other and that's not even that long ago you know what I mean but so like just think about how things are going to be, you know, in in 20 years, just 20 years from now. Think about how how much different things might be. Oh, move out the way. We got Missy Elliott coming through. When I walk up in peace, 
The sparkly uniforms and bright smiles are all a part of being one of the 16 Warrior Girls whose job is to electrify the fans of Golden State basketball. The best part about being a dancer for the Warriors is it blows any dancing in front of any crowd out of the water. I mean, it's 20,000 fans screaming and yelling. For Jackie, dancing for the Warriors is the pot of gold at the end of her rainbow. Being a rookie on the Warriors dance team is a lot to take in. You you come expecting to dance, but you, you don't come expecting to, you know, grow as a woman and completely change everything about your dancing you've ever done. They mold you to be exactly what you need to be to be on this team. All those head snaps need, like, boom, look, look, whatever you're doing has to be a lot sharper. Again. It's up to Sabrina Ellison to decide which of these women fit the Warriors mold. The biggest thing that you're looking for is really it's a whole package. So you have to be fit and in shape and be able to dance at a professional level. So, um, you know, that physical fitness aspect, um, beauty in and out. We do an extensive interview of our dancers. We want to make sure, you know, they're positive. That positive attitude is important when the dancers meet the community. We went to a high school and we worked with a group of girls. We taught them a dance and then we just sat down and we were able to talk to them about what it takes to step up your game. But not everyone would want their daughter to be a warrior girl. If I had a daughter or you know someone I knew that was little, I, I would be very hesitant to support them with being in this profession or going after it the way it's constructed. This is how Lisa Murray looked when she was a warrior girl for three seasons. She says after the blush of being chosen wore off, certain realities set in. As soon as I signed my contract and reading over that you get paid $10 an hour, in your head you think, oh, this is the top of the top. Women work their whole lives to get to this position or this place and you're making less than someone makes when they're working in college and have their first job. I mean, it's pretty startling, to be honest. And it doesn't stop there. You had to look a certain way with your body. Your nails had to be a certain color. If they wanted you to be a blonde, you were a blonde. If they wanted you to be a brunette, you were a brunette. If they wanted you to cut your hair, you cut your hair. But if you did not, you know, look good or if you started to gain weight, you know, they would measure you and they would bench you. And if you were benched, then you weren't getting paid. The Warriors did provide hair and makeup stylists free of charge on game days, but this wasn't the case for all teams. Now, professional teams across the nation are being called out for the way they treat their cheerleaders. Former cheerleaders have sued the Oakland Raiders three times. The team settled with one plaintiff for more than a million dollars. Despite the lawsuits, the Raiderettes today are reportedly earning just $9 an hour. We've all heard stories in the media about the NFL's problems with women. Now, a California assemblywoman wants to protect all of them. Glorified volunteers. As a former college cheerleader, labor leader, and attorney, Lorena Gonzalez understands what cheerleaders face in the workplace. From the time you walk into the stadium, you, you hand your ticket to a guy who's getting paid as an employee. You, you buy your beer from a guy who's getting paid as an employee. Somebody comes up and cleans it after you, a janitor. They're being paid. The players on the field, the coaches, the trainers, everybody involved, mainly male, are being paid as an employee, except the group of women who entertain us, quite frankly, who, who provide immeasurable amount of goodwill and actually revenue generating um, for the teams, aren't being treated like employees. She's introduced a bill that would guarantee professional cheerleaders across the state minimum wage, 
sick leave, workers' compensation, and overtime pay. Yes, it's an honor. It's an honor to have that role. But you're also doing work, and you should be compensated for it. And make sure that the elbows are tight but not hyperextended. But Lorreen like Lee says that's not the whole story. She was once a Raiderette and says her experience was priceless. Of course, I think everybody who is working at all should be paid fairly. But uh, I just wanted to speak out. I chaired for six seasons, and we all loved it. Nobody really complained about, oh, I, I can't stand this uh, you know, trip to Hawaii. You know, you know, this is horrible. I mean, no one would do that. So that's the thing. We all loved it so much, which is why we kept going back. I don't want to say that it's, it's horrible all around and it's something that I don't want anyone to be involved in because that would be a lie. I really want to be a woman that spoke out on this issue and helping younger women realize that, you know, we're sort of building a better tomorrow in terms of equality and that in order to get there, we're, all of women, whether it's NFL, NBA, need to come together as a united front and really fight for our rights. Rights that current warrior girls may soon enjoy. Though it's only Jackie's first year as a warrior girl. Just getting used to everything. It's all a little bit of a change and a little bit of a challenge. She seems to have met the challenge of fitting that warrior's mold. García García. Aquí estamos, esta es la casa de mis papás, donde ellos ahorita ya están sembrando el maíz de temporal. Nosotros con esta semilla tenemos más o menos como 30 años de que la sembramos y la sembramos y la sembramos y la sembramos, así vamos cada año, cada año, cada año. Esta va a ser para semilla. Esta es lo que usamos para cocer el listama. El maíz... La agua y cal. Y así. Yo les digo, es mejor así porque esta se hace un ejercicio. Sí, Temprano aquí. Nos hemos comprado, bueno, han comprado maíz este, amarillo que traen de otros países. O, o por ejemplo, la maseca. La maseca que viene de, de la empresa. Es la maseca que la harina. La harina, ajá. La tortilla no se hace así. Se hace muy chiclosa. Y a la hora de que se, se hace esto, como que no tan fácil se despega de la mano. Entonces, para nosotros es un, es un honor para las, este, aquí tener nuestros propio, nuestro propio maíz criollo. La relación del, del maíz en, en México, es decir, de la gente de México con el maíz, es sumamente profunda. Todo esto se interrumpiría, todo esto terminaría porque la contaminación transgénica es, de un, es, es violenta y empezaría a, a, a afectar a todos estos eh, campesinos que han vivido en la autosuficiencia. Es incomprensible que el gobierno mexicano pretenda autorizar a un maíz la siembra de un maíz transgénico porque todos los problemas que tenemos en México en relación con el maíz los podemos resolver con nuestros maíces nativos. Backed by the U.S. and Mexican governments and a deep war chest, 
Seed companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, and DuPont have been trying to bring GM corn to Mexico for their meat existence. Para eso hicimos la cuarta feria aquí, donde participaron productores de nueve municipios, tanto del estado de Michoacán como del estado de México. Y la idea es esa, cómo realmente defender nuestras variedades criollas de, de maíces y, y no permitir que entren los maíces transgénicos, porque por toda la información que hemos recopilado, ¿verdad?, y que hemos estado informados de que, pues, es un engaño el que nos quieren hacer. This coalition of activists, lawyers, farmers, and artists has sued the Mexican government and the seed companies for the genetic contamination of native Mexican seed stocks. De una demanda colectiva que iniciamos y demandamos a Zagarpa, a Semarnat, a Monsanto, a Singenta, a Dow AgroScience y a Pioneer. Los demandamos y les dijimos que nos estaban contaminando. Pero al mismo tiempo les dijimos a los jueces En tanto esté la demanda, queremos una medida precautoria, así se llama. En que no le des ningún permiso a las empresas, porque qué chiste que discutamos si, no, si va a hacer daño o no, y mientras tú le sigues dando permiso. En 2013, a judge sided with the colectividad, granting the suspension. Logramos que se suspendiera y pues bueno, esa fue una gran noticia que ha dado la vuelta al mundo. Pero lo que más llama la atención es que las primeras impugnaciones que recibimos fueron por parte del gobierno. Que eso es, nos parece increíble, porque además el gobierno mexicano no, no es que respondiera diciendo, bueno, vamos a analizar si hay errores, qué, qué está pasando, por qué hay contaminación, sino claramente el gobierno mexicano dijo, no pueden suspender los permisos, esto es ilegal, este... Bueno, han argumentado generalmente cosas de forma. Si yo no soy la representante legal, si no habían firmado todos, nunca hemos entrado, nunca se ha entrado al fondo. For the colectividad, Mexico's corn gene pool is a public resource, like clean water or clean air, and needs to be protected. This lab at UNAM in Mexico is carrying on work started by Ignacio Chapella, monitoring Mexican seed and food corn for GM contamination. What we're talking about is really a much more promiscuous kind of DNA. It's a DNA that has the tendency, the propensity to replicate itself and insert itself over and over and over wherever it can. So if you think about generations, this can lead to a flooding out of other ancestries that you might be keeping in your seed bank, in your seed. Uh, collection. So it's a form of kind of internal colon, internally colonizing the population of the corn that you want by the corn of your neighbor who bought from Monsanto. The hills of Michoacán form a sort of open-air corn laboratory where 10,000-year-old lineages of corn mingle their pollens and evolve to adapt to the changing climate. The farmers working this lab are small farmers, campesinos, like Josefina García García. Aquí tenemos las plantas de nuestro maíz. El maíz es muy sabio, el que tenemos acá, y que como campesinos también debemos saberlo escuchar. El maíz no habla, eh, pero sí nos manifiesta por medio de sus colores qué es lo que le hace falta. Por ejemplo, si está moradito, es que le hace falta fósforo. I think the big failure of 
Monsanto and people like that is that they do not recognize the importance of a campesino just because he's not a you know he's not wearing a white coat. They're doing it, and they have done it for ten thousand years quite successfully. Um, but there is some kind of logic failure, logical failure in the way people like Monsanto, even the World Bank, understand it, that they really dismiss the importance of that work. Chapella says that even seed companies like Monsanto recognize the value of these hotspots of genetic diversity. So there are many examples of that, how um, homogeneity in industrial agriculture has been hit by disease, and then um, geneticists have had to go back to the cradle, back to the centers of diversity, and, uh, and bring new materials to cross with their homogeneous plants. If we lose that, we lose the capacity to continue producing food for the planet. The Colectividad's victory is a fragile one. The case is likely to go on to the Mexican Supreme Court. 100 years ago, over 1 million Armenian people were forced from their homes and slaughtered. In Paris, the lights on the Eiffel Tower were shut off to commemorate the genocide. In Rome, the Pope officially condemned the atrocities. Here in San Francisco, the anniversary was commemorated in a very different way. They turned tragedy into art. Eddie Barsumian is one of the principal dancers in the production of A Tribute to the Centennial. Barsumian's mother told him that members of her family had attempted to fight back the Turks and were killed. On my, on my father's side, all we really know is the story of my grandfather, and he was orphaned and uh, sent to an orphanage. He ran away from the orphanage, went back to where he was from, his home, and he found that there was nothing left, and uh, the only thing he had with him was his father's watch and the story of the new family that had moved in. Choreographed by Noemi Araxi Kaljian, founder of Arax Dance, each dance in the performance depicts a moment in Armenia's history. Today, the memory of the massacre remains an open wound. The Turkish government refuses to officially recognize the mass killings as genocide. The genocide is part of our identity, and for Turkey to say that they never this never happened, never existed, it's a huge blow. It's to say that our identity is not valid, you know, because we are survivors and we came, for, we wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for what they had done. Bathed in the red, blue, and gold of the Armenian flag, City Hall will host the performance by Iraq's dance. It is a lavish affair with a hefty price tag, all paid for by sponsors and the Bay Area Armenian Genocide Commemoration Committee. In this particular performance, I mean, you know, of course, because it's the Armenian Genocide Commemoration, we really have to do a good job and portray these things well. But also, you know, one thing that 
I, I'm, it made us all nervous, it's the amount of people. The first piece of the evening is Ara Karedi. Lena Halte, an Armenian dancer, has been with Arox for many years. That's, uh, that piece is called Ara Kereti, which translates to Ara the Beautiful. It's a popular Armenian um, legend. So the king of Armenia fell in love with um, Shabinam, who's an Assyrian queen. And um, so it's a trio that we do where he's kind of torn. You know, I don't want him to leave. I'm the Armenian queen. And he notices Shamiram, and he's kind of enthralled by her. So King Ara ends up actually turning to his wife. He stays loyal to his homeland. And as a result, Shamiram um, wages war with Armenia. And so it's way deep in our history. Um, so the program starts with something that's kind of centuries away and then kind of moves through time. I want to do this person justice. I don't. I want to depict him well, uh, because that's that's the big pressure. It's to do somebody that is not around uh, the best you can. Dancers drape the colors of the Armenian flag over the stairs, setting the stage for the rest of the evening. is like every other five-year-old girl. She loves coloring, playing in the park, but she came from Mongolia to Oakland Children's Hospital because she has a rare disease. So rare that it strikes only one in a million people. They come to the hospital once a week to participate in a clinical trial for NBIA, a genetic condition similar to Parkinson's. It's caused by too much iron accumulating in the brain. It is uniformly fatal in childhood and often progresses with the inability to walk, talk, swallow, and then eventually uh, breathe. Being accepted to the trial wasn't the only challenge Noman's family had to face. They had to obtain a V2 visa for medical treatment. That requires evidence that care for Noman's disease is not available at home, and a guarantee that they have binding times there and won't try to stay in the U.S. permanently. 
Qualifying for this visa is so tough that Nomad's family applied three times before they got it. Nothing is harder than for a mother or a father to watch their child and be told there's nothing we can do, your child's going to get worse, lose his function, and die. And then they hear about a treatment in another country that's reversed the disease. That nothing is stronger than a family to try to get that treatment for the child. No. Okay. Shoes off. Look, your blood pressure is not too low, Missy. But Newman isn't the only international patient seeking treatment. Children's Hospital accepts people from all over the world. Patricia Spinal's family left the Dominican Republic 10 years ago seeking treatment for her illness, MPS-6, a progressive condition that impairs breathing, stunts growth, and weakens the heart. <sighs> what does it mean for me to live with a rare disease? Everybody always asks me that question. And, you know, some days are hard, but other days, you know, you just accept it and... I always had a rare disease, so for me it's not different than another person maybe living with depression or with diabetes, you know, it's just, it's just it's part of me, you know, and I just try to make the best of it. Um, I don't let it define me, you know. I know I have limitations, but I still try to do the best I can and try to be as normal as everybody else. <laughs> Patricia is now in a spot that Nomen's family can only hope for. She's one of the program's success stories. A treatment was found for her, and she has been on that medication ever since. But the downside? She can never go home for good because the medication is not available in the Dominican Republic. I think the most challenging things for families with rare diseases to come into the United States is uh, they are multifaceted. So I think it's really the challenge of adapting to life in the U.S. Um, we're in the Bay Area. We're in a big city. So some of these families are not from big cities. Um, being away from their loved ones is very difficult. Newman and her dad are living in Oakland with three other Mongolians. It's been half a year since no one saw her mom, a difficulty they're willing to endure. Today, Yes. 
the family was willing to take these extreme measures after suffering an earlier tragedy. Noman's older sister died of the same disease when she was just a little older than Noman is now. They do come here because their older daughter had passed away from this. They, they didn't even know what she had until after she passed away. It sounded to us like she had a dystonic storm and they didn't have the ability to treat her or to get her out of the support her during this dystonic storm and she passed away. So they felt desperate. They really felt like this. we were their only chance. We were very clear with them that this is a placebo-controlled trial. We don't know if she's on the drug. It's heartbreaking. But um, they understand that, and they understand that this is we're trying to move things forward so that there will be a treatment. See you later. And that positive outcome is what gave Patricia a stable life and the ability to plan ahead. In the future, I want to finish my schooling. Um, I want to transfer to Sudama State and uh, maybe major in sociology or something that would help me continue helping others who have MPSX or other rare diseases. For the time being, Noman's future is unsure. It only exists in her father's dreams. stage I feel like almost like an adrenaline rush that rush that Selena rush that comes in when honey Andrews impersonates her idol Selena she channels the late singer's charisma And that Selena energy never leaves her, even at her day job. The 29-year-old surrounds herself with memories of Selena. Then they'll start looking at it and they're like, wait a minute, is that you? And I'm like, yeah. So I was, I was like, I, I impersonate Selena. And they're like, oh my God. And then they'll get up from their chair, from the chair, and then they start looking at the pictures. Honey's connection to Selena traces back to her childhood. She moved to the U.S. from Mexico with her family the same weekend Selena died. We came over, over here to Corpus and... Um, that's when I saw everything like on the news, I mean, on the, when they started having the, the candlelight vigil, the funeral and all of that. And um, I remember it was like crazy. I still remember it like it was yesterday. On March 31st, 1995, the 23-year-old star was shot and killed by the president of her fan club. Selena gained popularity in the 80s and 90s and became an icon after her death. Since then, several millions of her albums have been sold. 
Selena inspired the Latino community, but she meant even more for Honey. Definitely, definitely growing up uh, and becoming a transgender woman, uh, Selena was one of my influences. Seeing her, her, her face, her, her body, her, everything that she was, who doesn't want to look like her? Honey studied Selena's unique stage persona, moves, fashion sense, and even her makeup. She was known, really, really known for, I want to say it's her long hair, her long straight hair with her bangs. As far as uh, her makeup, she was very natural about it, but still with the red lip, the red Latina lip that till today everybody uses. Many of Selena's cultural qualities and personal struggles resonate with the Latino LGBTQ community. Selena has had probably the biggest impact in my life. No, not probably, she has. Andrew Lucero, a Mexican-American, began impersonating Selena after auditioning at a drag queen venue. A big way that I really identify with her and that she's really helped me is uh, her big struggle growing up. You know, not only being an outcast and kind of being ridiculed in school. I had that a little bit growing up, you know, being gay, but still closeted, but everyone kind of knew. So I got a little teased. You know, as a performer, she had the hardship of, of being a woman in, in, a, in a society and in, in, especially in a music genre where women were not successful. She experienced the exact same kind of, you know, backlash as a woman. And for me, I'm, I'm gay and it's, it's a different, different thing and a whole different ballpark. But it's that same struggle and that same... Um, I guess, obstacle that I'm also climbing and, and overcoming. She's ready. Selena impersonators are drawn to her fashion-forward style. At home, Honey's closet is full of custom-made outfits, just like Selena's. Every, every piece on here was made from uh, scratch, um, close to the original as possible, and here underneath that I have the bustiers that are um, hanging in here. The pearl outfit, the pearl bra. This I made by myself, of course. Um, this one, these beads were actually, I beaded them in there. Um, this one, I rhinestone myself. And um, here's the red one that I wore on last night, last night. <laughs> Honey normally performs at parties in local clubs. But last year, when she asked to take part in a formal Selena tribute, she was bluntly turned down by the event organizer. Um, everybody's been already... Uh, placed in the list. Um, besides, nobody wants to see uh, a man dressed up like Selena. It was definitely a reality check as to, you know, me being a transgender girl, that there's still people that I'm, you know, you know, I'm still going to struggle with stuff like that along the way. So I replied in the most professional way that I could to not make myself step down to his level and sound like the ignorant person that he is. Still, the comments were so hurtful that Honey hesitated to appear this year at Fiesta de la Flor, the tribute marking the 20th anniversary of Selena's death. But she went anyway. Me. I know I take pictures of you all the time. I had to put down my turkey like honey. <laughs> One, two, three. Some girls were asking questions. I was like, oh, she's a celebrity here in Corpus. Get it together. Okay. <laughs> Just like honey, Andrew also worried about criticism. This is one thing I was scared about, you know, receiving criticism, not only from people, you know, watching the show, seeing a man dressed as a woman, but also from the Selena fans. I've never experienced any kind of negativity 
And what's more than that is that I perform for a lot of uh, straight places and, you know, straight and uh, heterosexuals. And um, on top of that, most of them are Latinos. And on top of that, most of them were born in their respective countries and were raised in that very Catholic, very Latino culture. impersonating her um, for as long as I can and um, for many years to come um, and forever how long I stay looking you know decent enough to go on stage and, you know imitating her they don't understand that I'm doing this as a as a tribute to her I'm doing this as my my way of being a, a number one fan to keep her memory alive Sarah Toyoshima comes alive with the rhythm of samba, the dance of her Brazilian homeland. But this celebration is not taking place in Brazil. It's in Japan, where hundreds of thousands of Brazilians have lived for a quarter century. Sarah finds herself straddling two cultures. Então, eu não me sinto japonesa, me sinto brasileira mesmo, mas por morar bastante tempo aqui, Eu já considero como se fosse meu meu país, né? Brazilian-born Carol Shibukawa also came to Japan with her family. But unlike Sarah, she has decided to try to adapt to Japanese culture, despite the fact she's faced serious discrimination. When I came to Japan, people looked at me like I was not human like I was a, an animal. The other child always look at me strained and, well, they said bad things about me and I was bullied because of the color of my hair or my weird nose or, well, because I am Brazilian. Japan is famous for its one-culture society, but in reality, around two million foreigners call it home. Many of them are like Carol and Sarah, Brazilian-born, whose parents brought them to Japan because their Japanese heritage made them eligible to seek low-level work in factories. 25 years later, Japan has become home, but they are still stuck in the factories. Now, their children are trying to escape the same fate. Carol's entire family, mother, stepfather, and two half-sisters, was born in Brazil. Her stepfather is a Japanese-Brazilian, making him and Carol's mother eligible for factory work. My mother, she was working to 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. Some days I don't see her. Uh, some days we don't talk, we don't have more, well, communication. 
O trabalho aqui no Japão é muito... Muita, muitas horas, como fala? Muitas horas... É longo. É muito... Corrido. É corrido, mas é cansativo. Cansam... É, 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 são 12 horas dentro de uma fábrica. Então, 12 horas dentro de uma fábrica... É um, praticamente é um dia todo. Quer dizer, você, vê, não, você não vê nem o sol lá fora. É, é um, uma, uma jornada de trabalho de, de 30 dias corrido. E o descanso é muito pouco. Quando eu primeiro vi japonês factories, parece que algumas companhias militares. Factory work is harsh in Japan. But for Carol's father, it was a step up from his life in Brazil. E no Brasil, como não eu não tinha muito estudo, a família pobre, então resolvi vir para o Japão, né? Tentar uma vida melhor. Só que a minha vinda para cá foi para ficar dois anos só. My father is here in Japan for 23 years. Ah, não, isso ainda vai 24. This year. 24. Her stepfather's difficult life is part of an historic pattern. His grandparents immigrated to Brazil from Hiroshima after World War II, but they were not alone. Many Japanese had been going to Brazil since the early 20th century in search of better economic opportunity. These workers uh, fill the jobs at the bottom of hierarchy of employment. Uh, highly insecure, highly unstable, uh, low-paid, so-called low-skilled jobs. Sarah was eight when her family came from Brazil, just slightly older than her oldest daughter is now. Her parents were able to find work in factories because Sarah's grandfather was Japanese. Though she was unable to speak the language, they put her into a Japanese public school. Como eu entrei no, não entrei desde a primeira série, entrei na terceira, né? Então eu sempre estava atrasada, né? para aprender assim nos estudos, né? Os professores não pegavam tanto no pé assim de estrangeiro, né? Então, se a gente quiser não quisesse ir, então para eles não fazia tanta diferença assim, né? Porque a gente conseguia dormir na aula e ninguém <risos> e ninguém falava nada. Frustrated, she soon left school. Quando, é, te, depois que terminei os estudos, né, com 15 anos, que eu não quis prosseguir, eu é, fui, comecei a trabalhar né, em fábrica, fazer arubaito, né? Sarah and her Brazilian husband had two daughters before separating. Now her salary barely covers her expenses. Então, no meu trabalho na fábrica, <laughs> eu ganho 950, faz... É, algumas fábricas não aceitam muito quem tem filho, né? É bem difícil para quem tem filho, ainda mais mãe solteira, né? Conseguir emprego aqui no Japão. Her boyfriend Alex is from South Africa. In Japan, time counts, I think, more than anywhere. If you miss three days at work, it's already a lot of money gone. Sarah's disappointment with school is common for immigrant children. 
In fact, they are not even required to go to school. They are welcome to come, but it's not considered to be their rights. The Japanese state do not force them to attend. Frustrated parents formed schools that follow the Brazilian curriculum and are taught in Portuguese. But these schools have their own challenges. Eunice Ishikawa was born in Brazil, but she came to Japan as a college student and is now a university professor. Her two children were born in Japan. Biologically, they are 100% Japanese. They even have Japanese passports. Still, they are treated as outsiders. They, they don't consider my son and my daughter to be Japanese because I am not born in Japan. And my husband also. I learned how to live here, but I don't know if my children are going to learn how to live here treated as a foreigner, even they are born and raised in Japan. God, they have to be kind of strong to be able to, to live in Japan. During the 2008 recession, thousands of Brazilians and Japanese nationals lost their jobs. Many became homeless. In a desperate measure, Japan attempted to alleviate the nation of some of the foreign population by offering $3,000 plus airfare to leave the country and never see work in Japan again. Many Brazilians did leave, but Carol's dad stuck it out despite losing his job. I don't agree with my mother. In fact, I, I can't agree with her because everyone is human, so everyone is equal. So I don't know why people look stare at me or my mother because we are the same. Carol is hopeful for her future in Japan. She's learned the language and the culture. She has a serious Japanese boyfriend and after she graduates high school plans to attend a professional school for tourism where she hopes being foreign will be seen as an advantage. But Sarah's struggle to succeed will be harder. She has started her own business as a makeup artist and hopes to one day put factory work behind her. Eu, na verdade, eu queria conseguir me manter só 
com maquiagem, né? Conseguiria, não sei, dar uma vida melhor pra elas, né? Mas ainda tá muito no, no, no começo, né? Então pra isso eu tenho que trabalhar em fábrica e final de semana em dois, no caso seria em dois trabalhos, né? So far, it's been hard to find clients outside of her Brazilian community, but she keeps striving. Actually, I'm very proud of her because she's a really very hard work person and people she want to open her own school, her own hair salon. Yeah. There's a Japanese proverb, the nail that stands up gets hammered down. If that's true, Sarah and Carol may never fit into Japanese society. But Japan's aging population and declining birth rate mean it will be increasingly dependent on foreign workers. And that may make Sarah, Carol, and their families necessary, if not equal, members of Japanese society. I do not like being called a water cop. I am a water waste inspector. To me, a cop is somebody who enforces laws and stuff. I, we don't do that. We inform, we educate. So I am a water waste inspector, not a water cop. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I respond to about 10 to 15 cases a, a day. Most of the cases are uh, excessive water runoff, uh, broken irrigation, and uh, water in within restricted hours. Once we get to the location, we look to see if we see anything. So if somebody calls in and said that they're watering their car without a shutoff nozzle, we'll look to see on their water hose if they have a, a positive shutoff nozzle. Then we'll go to the door, knock on the door, try to make contact with the customer. And um, if not, then we leave a door hanger. We also like to check to see, uh, you know, as you can see, their, their lawn is pretty healthy. So we see that they're definitely watering. And we just hope that they're watering within the restricted hours. So let's go see if we can get somebody. Okay, so nobody's home. Doesn't look like anybody's home. So what I'm going to do now is just uh, indicate what the violation was. So I'm just going to mark down that they were watering within the restricted hours of 8 a.m. 8 p.m. Pretty healthy. Uh, yeah, pretty much. We have a big county, almost 2 million residents, so there's a lot of reports that are coming in about water waste. Oftentimes people don't even know that uh, the sprinklers go off at 5 in the morning and maybe they just aren't around at that time, maybe they don't go outside to see that they've got a gusher. Some people certainly uh won't take this seriously until there are fines being issued. But I think most people want to do the right thing. So it's actually right here, okay.
And so uh, somebody reported about the irrigation system out here. It was being used at um, during a water-restricted hour. So I was just trying to get information on either like a property manager or a facilities manager or so anybody that's in charge of your irrigation system. No, I'm okay. just the shift supervisor. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Hello. How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> How you doing? I'm from the Santa Clara Valley Water District. I'm a wastewater inspector. And I was trying to get information on the um, property manager or facilities manager, anybody in charge of your irrigation system around the perimeter of the property. Do you have information on the... You do not? No. All right. Are you sure? I think you do. Yeah. All right. No problem. Thank you. Well, that's strike three. Now, what a moisture meter does, this pretty much can tell if you're overwatering your grass. So what you, what you do is plug it in like it says this is wet. So this is completely unacceptable. So we definitely we need to get in touch with the. Um, with the person responsible for irrigating. Head north on Via de Adriana, then turn right onto Paso Los Cerritos. We're going to uh, Silver Creek Country Clubs. Now, this is actually going to be the second time that I went out to this address, and apparently he has not gotten this fixed, so I would definitely make note of it. So the last time, so it still looks like he's still having that same problem. It's a broken broken sprinkler heads and it's causing all this flooding right here and you can see right here okay normally the, the biggest fights are over the phone is after I left the door hanger and they'll call back and again they're they're upset because they don't really understand what the door hanger means they just see the notice and they just want to know how much is the fine going to be and they want to fight the case, and I'm like, it's not a case to fight. It's just stop wasting water, and we won't have a. You won't ever see me again. Hello. Yeah. How you doing? I'm from the uh, Santa Clara Valley Water District. I'm uh, hearing about the uh, the excess runoff you have right here in front of your home. Excuse me. I will just leave it on the door, okay? Thank you. If my job security is depending on this drought, the way it's looking, I'll probably be here for a while. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.